This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Take a moment and rate and review us on your podcasting app. And thank you for making this part of your life every week when we get to explore what's new in this diverse genre of classical music. And we get to hear the conversations with musicians from around the globe. This service is possible because of a dedicated community of listeners and donors. Power the music that you love with a tax-deductible gift today. To contribute, just go to yourclassical.org and click Donate. John Metcalf says he's a yes-man, and he rarely says no to an opportunity, which has landed him some pretty interesting gigs with rock artists like you, too, Coldplay and Peter Gabriel. And some of them have even been a little bit terrifying. (laughs) He'll tell you more about that as we learn about his latest project, which is called Carols Without Words. This week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media, I'm Julia Macher. Well, let's start off, John, by just having you introduce yourself. For people who may not know who you are, what would your elevator speech be to introduce yourself to them? Uh, I've never heard that phrase, elevator speech. Oh, do you mean, oh, in a lift? Sorry, I've been very British. What would your lift lift speech be? I would say, say, hello, my name's John Metcalf. I'm very pleased to meet you. Uh, If you don't know what I do for a living, I'm a musician, I'm a violist, I'm classically trained, uh, and I also arrange orchestras for uh, various artists. Uh, I perform. I have my own band. I'm, I'm what they call in the UK a portfolio musician, so I do lots of different things. One of the things that you have done is created some pretty cool arrangements for bands like U2, Coldplay, Peter Gabriel. How did that become part of your portfolio? Well, that's a very long story. I'll try and make it as succinct as I possibly can. Um, but it's basically a history of my career as a musician. So um, I went to, I claimed, trained classically in Manchester in the UK as a violist. Uh, and while I was there, I joined a band on the old um, cult label, the factory label, who were responsible for Happy Mondays and Joy Division. And I joined a band on that label called the Girati Column. And uh, the producer of one of their records was a man called Stephen Streets, who had already done uh, lots of well-known stuff like working with the Smiths on some of their seminal records. And he came and produced an album for the Girati Column. And when Morrissey and the Smiths parted ways, he asked me if I would like to arrange some strings on Morrissey's first solo album. And I said I was a huge Smiths fan, so of course I said yes. Uh, And one thing led to another. So I did more and more work for Stephen and worked with bands like Blur and the Cranberries, Catatonia. Um, And I think as my reputation as an arranger spread, uh, more people asked me to work with them. So it was kind of word of mouth, really. Um, And the the, the project with with Peter Gabriel came about because I was working on a mad um, live composing project which involved um, Sibelius and an an orchestra where me and another composer called Simon Hale were literally composing live in front of an audience. It was the scariest and most (laughs) 
it was the most scary thing I've ever done in my life. Um, but somebody who works with Peter Gabriel was in the audience that night, and it just so happened that Peter was looking for someone to work with on an orchestral record of orchestral covers. Uh, so uh, they invited me in, and I had a chat with Peter about various composers, Stravinsky, Reich, uh, lots of stuff, and I submitted some demos for him over a Christmas period, and um, that led on to working with him for three and a half years. Wow, it really, its you just got to be in the right place at the right time sometimes, right? I, think, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I'm very fortunate in that, you know, a lot of um, people get in touch with me and say, could I just have a chat with you for, you know, half an hour and talk about career and stuff and, and, and uh, talk about work and composition. And more often than not, they ask that question, how did you get the work that you did? And I think it is that thing of it's some of it is pure luck. You do have to be in the right place. But when you are in the right place at the right time, you also have to have the the skills and uh, to be able to uh, deliver what people are looking for. And be open to that opportunity, right? Um, I mean, I've talked to so many musicians who say, well, I was offered this thing and I said, sure, I'll try that, right? And then all of a sudden you realize that um, either you can do it or maybe that was the wrong choice. <laughs> So. Well, I think that the thing is, Julie, I think that um, that's one of those things. Is it that film? Is it Jim Carrey, The Yes Man, where saying yes to everything can lead you to some extraordinary situations? And of course, if you don't try it, if you don't say yes, you'll never know. Uh, I've rarely, rarely turned anything down at all, ever. What did you say yes to that maybe you had some real fears about that turned out really well? Gosh, what a very good question that is. Uh, I'm racking my brains. Um, I think, actually, it was saying yes to the live composition project um, because that before that point, I'd primarily been a string arranger, but because I'm a violist, I really understand that world. I know what, what how the string mind works as a, you know, as a, as a performer. Um, and... Going full orchestral was suddenly I was thrown at the deep end because I literally had two months to learn how to use Sibelius very quickly. I had to become a kind of power user on Sibelius. But also, I had to really learn about things like range for the instruments and how how saxophones work <laughs> uh, and bass trombones and, uh, you know, the, the, all those other kind of instruments that I, you know, obviously I was aware of they're completely conversant with those sound worlds but in terms of actually writing for them and those techniques and what works on those instruments and doesn't uh, it, I, it was absolutely terrifying uh, but it was one of those things when it, it when it came together in the performance it was extraordinary because of course it was like all improvisation projects you don't know what's going to happen on the night and sometimes there were areas of the show that would would wander a little bit musically but when it came together it was kind of exponential it was absolutely fantastic and you're writing stuff with other composers and there was also a live band there who were improvising and there are just things that happened that you never expected would happen uh, so although it was terrifying, it was artistically incredibly rewarding. And also the project with Peter Gabriel came out of it. And improvising is really kind of one of your sweet spots, isn't it? I mean, that's a comfort zone for you now. Is It may be because of that project. I don't know. 
Um, I think that, yes, that, yeah, I, in a way I'm quite comfortable with improvising. When I was pretending to practice at college, <laughs> I would go and I'd be sort of be practicing the Bartok Concerto or Brahms uh, Sonata. But I, my mind would wander a little bit. I wasn't the best, most efficient use of practice time. But I would be improvising a lot um, and just sort of making stuff up. And, and I think that that really helped me as a composer and a arranger because I'm not actually, as a composer, I'm not uh, traditionally trained in that way. So a lot of the the way that I approach work now is if somebody comes to me and says, oh, could you write something for the, you know, or, or arrange something for us? It starts with improvisation. And I, you know, and I'm on the keyboard or I'm on the viola playing directly into the microphone. And more often than not, the material that I come out with on the first time through is quite often what ends up being used in in the main. I mean, there might have to be, of course, there are, there are always mistakes, uh, but it usually forms the core of what gets uh, onto the, the record, what gets onto the final master. John, your father is an operatic tenor, or is he still around? Is your father still living? Oh, no, no. Um, my father died when I was 11, um, only a couple of years after we moved from New Zealand. Oh, wow. Well, he was an operatic tenor, and I'm curious how experiencing that growing up may have impacted you as a composer or influenced you as a musician. Ah, uh, that's a really interesting, that's a very profound question. Uh, I'm sure it did. He became an operatic tenor, not by chance, but his route to being on stage singing major you know, lead tenor roles in in very well-known operas um, wasn't the usual route. He wasn't uh, college-trained, conservatoire-trained, shall we say. And I think that hearing that sound in the house and also my mother, that's how they met. She was uh, out playing the piano for uh, rehearsals for the opera company that he joined in New Zealand. So there was a lot of music in the house. And I'm sure that the sound of his voice deeply affected my response to music and the way that I write music. But interestingly, a lot of the music that I've written for my own solo projects tends to be instrumental. And I wonder, this might be pushing things a little bit too far, but I have wondered occasionally whether it was kind of too painful to write for voice uh, because it would have reminded me of him in some way. And perhaps I was avoiding that in writing instrumental music. And I came up with all sorts of excuses not to write for voice that, for example, when you have lyrics, you are giving the listener a very particular narrative that they are almost bound to follow because it, it's very, you know, it's obviously very descriptive in a way that instrumental music allows you to really wander and use your imagination and have your own emotional response to the piece of music. So I don't really know the answer to that question. It's uh, it's one for the subconscious that's quite hard to articulate. We're going to get back to that when we start diving into your new recording. I do want to ask you, though, how the viola became your instrument of choice. Ah, yes. Well, my mother was a music teacher in the local school. And I'm not sure how this happened, but the the violin teacher there said, would your son like lessons? And he taught both violin and viola. And I started quite late. I think I was about nine or ten when I had my first 
viola lesson. And because I wasn't raised, or, although paradoxically, because there was a lot of music in the house, I didn't know about, I didn't know any good violinists. I hadn't been raised listening to Perlman playing the Tchaikovsky or Heifetz or, you know, any of these legendary violinists. So my only experience of the violin was beginners, people at school scratching away on the E string and making an absolutely, well, in the most part, <laughs> an appalling sound. <laughs> So I thought, well, and I didn't know anything about the viola, but I thought that's got to be better than the violin, right? So I just went for the viola. So I never played, I never played the violin, never practiced the violin. Although I would love to play, I would love to play violin in bass over nine in the slow movement. Mm. That would make that would make me turn from the viola <laughs> momentarily. What's interesting about that is I think about um, some of the music you compose. Is the viola is one of those inner voices. And so it really, you know, it often helps to sustain everything else around it, but it doesn't have to be the center, you know, like the the soloist, if you will. And I'm curious, maybe that's, maybe that involves or has something to do with the way in which you compose then. Yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe I... I didn't want to necessarily be the person who is in the center of the stage commanding all the attention. I think that when I listened to music and when I was listening to a lot of bands, I would be in a way far more interested in what the guitarist doing was doing or or, or, or the drummer. And I am very interested in how other composers, different musics create texture and create atmosphere and a mood and an emotion. And it doesn't, for me, it doesn't, as we were talking about just now, it doesn't always come from the lead vocal or the the solo violin part. Uh, and so then maybe that's why I went for the viola. I kind of composed from the inside out, I think. I come to the melod- melody last. And when I'm writing music, I quite often just start writing from a perspective of sonics and texture. And as the the material kind of expands, I then kind of think, oh, this could fit into this particular idea or a concept for the album. It's not like I approach writing music by thinking I'm going to set it to these poems or I'm going to make it about the the the, the solar system or something like that. Uh, and I love, as a musician, being on the inside of something and working with people. I don't necessarily want to just come in and tell everybody what to do. Composing from the inside out is a really interesting concept because I am really hearing that on your new recording, Carols Without Words. In fact, there were many instances where I'm like, really, is it that carol? (laughs) And I'd really have to listen (laughs) like, okay, where is the part I recognize? And I'd have to really be patient to find that. So let's dive in and talk about what we're hearing on this new recording. And first of all, I really want to ask you why you wanted to do this recording. Why did you want to make a recording of holiday music? I think it was, well, a a few people had, because they knew my style, and they said, you should try your hand at well-known and well-loved songs. And then um, somebody approached me directly and said, would you do this for us? And so all the pieces fell into place and also they said look we you know we would love you to do this and record it properly so I was able to go into Abbey Road and record with some absolutely wonderful 
uh, musicians who maybe we will talk about later. So I just thought, yeah, now is now is the time. And, you know, I've, I've discovered since, of course, that uh, during the course of doing this, that I was working with lots of engineers and, uh, uh, and musicians who are saying, well, you, you know, you're going to have to get in line because July... June and July is the time when everybody's recording Christmas albums. And in fact, I'd just been working with uh, Stefan Mocchio, or where, where I did some orchestrations and conducted the orchestra for Andrea Bocelli's Christmas album. So that seems to be the, the, the time of year when, when um, a lot of musicians are in Christmas time mode, in holiday, holiday mode. Um, and I think that once I'd committed to doing it, I really wanted to try and bring a as much as possible a kind of fresh approach to it and i wanted to create an album so not just sort of individual a set of singles as it were but to have uh, a kind of a journey through some very happy treatments of the carols as well as some really ambient treatments To come to the point about the melody disappearing, that's actually quite deliberate because I think particularly with some of the slower, more ambient reworkings, I, it was a deliberate attempt to make the melody disappear. Because of this thing that we were talking, again, talking about earlier, the narrative, I wanted to have allow people in a way to have their own memory of Christmas for them rather than me saying here's my version it's to allow people to to not be specifically listening to john metcalf the composer the arranger but to have an emo a deeper emotional response to a piece of music where they perhaps remember the melody of silent night but they're not actually engaged in listening to the melody itself So it can bring back memories of Christmases that they've had in the past, you know, or holiday um, music that they've had in the past. Because I'm very interested in that process of how people listen to music and not telling people what they should be listening to and how they should listen to it, that to allow the music in a way to be transparent. So to give people the opportunity to be in their own space, but not be too dictatorial about it. Does that make any sense? <laughs> As you're listening to this music now that you've created it, is there a special memory that comes to you as you're listening to a specific piece or maybe just as you're putting it on and listening to it? Do you find yourself having a, a, a memory that's just kind of filling your, your soul in the moment? I am not sure, to be honest with you, Julie, that I, that I do. I, first of all, that when I'm, when I'm listening to it, I'm always sort of thinking oh maybe I could have just improved that little bit of the mix or maybe I could have um maybe I would have arranged that slightly differently or maybe I could have done that in a different way uh so I am coming at it from uh 
a composer's perspective, I suppose. But for me, I think it's it's what I, I suppose in a way what I was trying to do is not make them necessarily holiday specific. In a way, the kind of the experiment was to make them pieces of music in their own right and try and deconstruct the fact that they are such strong. I mean, they're amazing melodies, of course they are, and they're they're so memorable for a lot of people. But to try and not just for the sake of it, but try and remove a very specific narrative that we all attach to those those carols. So for me, to try and answer your question, I, I'm struggling to think of anything particular. If I was to really push it, I might say the first Christmas after my father had died, that's the memory that springs to me. I mean, the holidays are not always cheerful for everybody, and we have to um, get through some really difficult times sometimes. And I think that's important to note that that's one of the the beauties of music that it can help us sort of, you know, heal if yes. if we allow it to have yeah. that power for us. Yes. As you were selecting these carols, you said that choosing these carols was a little bit like. A luthier choosing a piece of wood. Yes, absolutely. I think that I was, I suppose, selfishly looking for carols that would suit my style. Um, I wanted carols that would lend themselves to being energized or really astral, I suppose. Yeah, just sort of being in space, really um, not ambient in the way that you kind of zone out, but something that could be extra deep, extra gorgeous, extra wide. And I think that also some of some some carols are very the the, the melody. It's hard to detach the melody from the harmony, from the harmonic progression of them. And I think that. Sometimes I wanted to simplify that a little bit. So some of the earlier carols were easier to do that somehow. Uh, the, the harmonies, maybe in the way that, um, for example, with uh, the Four Seasons Recomposed, Max Richter's uh, amazing reimagining of, of the seasons, that those those kind of Baroque or early music harmonies in some ways are f- very contemporary. They're really, really contemporary. It's harder to perhaps reimagine, um, in a particular way, Strauss or Mahler or Brahms, they're, because their their harmonies are so amazing and rich and and um, emotional that you you can't you and nor should you change them. You can't you can't mess with that, that kind of thing. So I think I was looking for um, stuff that was open that I felt would respond well to uh, a, a, a treatment of perhaps, you know, light percussion or some sense of repetitive looping of, of uh, motivic rhythms and, and things like that. And it's also instinct. I think you just know when... You, when you, and, and it has to have a resonance with me as well. I felt that, like, you know, I instinctively knew, yes, this one is going to work. Absolutely, this one will work. A couple of the others... Um, 
in the bleak midwinter, for example, that one was a little harder to actually um, bring about because it starts with this sort of kind of composed introduction, if you like, uh, which is quite simple and, and repetitive. Then we go into a slightly more kind of romantic melody. Yes, that was the one that I certainly struggled with the most in terms of the time it took me to go from thinking, oh, I know what to do, I'll do this, and then thinking, coming back to it, and then thinking, this isn't working in the way that I wanted it to. It's going, it's pulling in a different direction to help. What am I going to do? How am I going to not just fix the problems, but make it something worthwhile? And I did consider abandoning it uh, once or twice. I just struggled with it. Actually, all of the others really were very quick to do. They took care of themselves. They just happened. And this was great. And of course, there was lots and lots of detail, but essentially it was like the, the broad brushstrokes on the canvas were like, yeah, those are the right colours, those are the shapes, that's the size of the canvas, that's great. But uh, yeah, in, in the bleak midwinter, yielded its secrets much more slowly. And in some respects, that's why it's kind of bookended by these two sections, which are purely composed. Because that was material that that carol inspired me to write. I really loved that stuff and I thought I need to include it. And this English horn player just makes an absolutely beautiful sound. Can you talk about the musicians that you worked with on this recording, please? Um, so the musicians on this record are absolutely fantastic. It's such a privilege to work with them. And a lot of them are have their own projects, have their own ensembles, quartets, uh, playing chamber ensembles. And they also work together all the time in studios such as Abbey Road on really blockbuster Hollywood films. They also work with major recording artists, lots of um, uh, very famous pop artists as well. And they have an extraordinary ability to work, sometimes if they have to work to click with headphones on, but to still be present in the room, to be still playing with each other. Their intonation, their, their technique, their sight reading is off the chart amazing. <laughs> and uh, so it means that when you, of course, because you know, there's always a bit of a time limit on these things in, in expensive recording studios. So you get material that you can use literally from take one. You know, sometimes engineers say to me, oh, should we just have a quick rehearsal? I'm saying, no, no, no. Hit record, it will be great. And again, you know, quite often I'm, I'm using stuff from the first take because also that's that's when they're discovering the music for the first time as well. So you get a special kind of atmosphere with those performances and and also we're very fortunate and that they you know they have amazing instruments a lot of them have really beautiful italian instruments so the sound they make is world class it's absolutely fantastic
Kam Okan Emanuel is often a very haunting carol. In your arrangement, though, you take that haunting melody and you almost turn it into kind of an energetic Celtic piece by the time we get done. This carol, again, it was it is a haunting melody. So I think I want, didn't want to completely do away with that. So I, I, I performed that absolutely on its own at the start of the carol just to say here is the material and then boof we're off (laughs) it's sort of you know a day of the races and I you know, and again, as a string player, I've played all that unbelievable repertoire. Chai, all the serenades, the Chaik, Vorjak, Elgar serenades, um, you know, the, the Steve Reich triple concerto. I've played different trains, you know, with, with, with my quartet. And, and also Frank Bridge variations, all of, those, uh, all of those extraordinary pieces of music. And I just wanted to see how far I could push it. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted also, because when I arrange, I'm, I want the musicians to have fun. I want have to, to be challenged for it to be musically, but technically rewarding as well. Because I think that if you don't do that, if you don't think about the musicians that you're writing for, um, then sometimes it can lead to pieces of music where the musicians don't have the best connection with it that they they possibly could and you know professional musicians give great performances of music that they don't necessarily like you know that's something that you you have to do but I think I I knew that I was writing for this particular set of musicians I knew that they were going to record it and I know what makes them tick we're all friends we all get on and I wanted to give them something that would be really enjoyable to play that would be energized and fast and hard uh, and to see how far it would be possible to push that. Because the other thing about writing arrangements of these these well-known melodies is that a lot of the time they're just verses. There's sort of six verses, and they're quite short. So you're kind of working in the area of theme and variations. actually make that not boring how do you actually turn those verses into a kind of a storytelling arc and make it into a a, a movement that makes dramatic sense normally what happens is that you sing five verses in the sixth verse the organ pulls out the stops or stops and, and it's loud and uplifting but with, with, with these, I wanted to try and make them complete pieces of music that, that had their own arc, you know, their own through story, if you like. How did you do that with Carol of the Bells? I suppose because I drift away from listening to the vocal when I hear a song, I start... You know, after the, after the first verse and chorus, okay, I've heard the voice. What are the drums doing? What's the guitar doing? Um, and I think with Carol of the Bells, dun, 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 it's, you know, I mean, that is a very, very short motif. 
What's interesting for me is how that material gets handed around, that you don't just have it on the top line, sopranos singing it, that you actually hand that material down. How does that tune sound being played in the bass? If, if you do give it to the bass, or you give it to the, the cellos and the bass, what are the other what are the other musicians going to be doing? How does that and how does it make sense? How does it make musical sense? How is it going to feel like a sort of proper piece of music with emotion that isn't just a compositional exercise? And that's a, that's a challenge with that kind of material. But again, with it being short, it is easy to hand it around. And, and, and as you do that, the texture changes as well and you get different energies from different parts of the ensemble. So it keeps, even though something might be repetitive, it keeps it alive and it keeps it interesting. You are an active musician. You are a member of the Duke String Quartet. And are you still also performing with the Max Richter Ensemble? Uh, yes, yes. I've, um, I'm just trying to remember when uh, I played a concert with uh, the ensemble in the UK a few months ago now. Um, and it was uh, his play. Yeah, we were performing voices, but also performing uh, infra. Did you have a chance to play the four seasons that Max Richter oh, reinvented? Oh, no, no, I never, no, oh, I never okay. did that. No, no I, I mean, was I'm just going to say the reason I'm asking is I was listening to the Christmas concerto that you wrote, and it made me wonder if in some way Max Richter inspired that. I suppose the notion of the audacity <laughs> to say, I, you know, I'm, I would never say, that, you know, I can, I can do this better because, of course, you can't. You know, these are extraordinary pieces of music, and it's, a, it's a bit um, assumptive to sort of, you know, to assume or presume upon those pieces of music. But I do love the Christmas concerto, and um, yeah, I just thought, okay, I will dip my toe into that lake and see how cold the water is. Well, so to my ear, it was kind of a blending of like the Paco Bell Canon with Vivaldi's Winter from the Four Seasons. Right. Is that what you're doing there? Well, quite possibly, Julie. I mean, you know, I... Um, it's it's one of those things where when you write when you approach any piece of music or you know when there's a blank canvas or a blank piece of manuscript or a blank computer screen where on earth do you start you know we are a sum of our parts we are influenced by so many things that have happened to us in our lives the pieces of music that have deeply affected us have moved us and sometimes those are conscious decisions to that we make in that I will, yes, I will use something and being very influenced by this particular composer. So I know that I am consciously using that technique, that progression, that sound, that mode of playing. And other times, I mean, you know, when, when I was doing the Peter Gabriel arrangements, I had musicians in the orchestra coming up to me and saying, oh, wow, you know, I was hearing Dutilleux there. And I'm like, were you? <laughs> um, I'm very happy for you, but I'm not. That was never my intention. But if I've stumbled, you know, if I've stumbled across that, um, and quite often, you know, in, in 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 pop music, you hear, you hear, you know, you work with a band and you hear something. You hear, you know, you hear their influences coming out, and it's the same with with all composition. 
So whether it was uh, deliberate or unintentional, it's a mix of both. Let's talk about the last piece on this recording. It's not one I'm familiar with. So, Gaudete is the, as you say, Julie, the last uh, piece on the album. And I wanted to end with something that was up, hopeful, forward-looking, happy. And Gaudete is, I think it's 16th century. So it is really quite an early piece of music. I, I'm sure that your listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, so many apologies. And uh, the solo violinist is a wonderful, wonderful musician called Thomas Gould. the Aurora Orchestra here in the UK and has made lots of uh, solo recordings. And he was sort of like a first choice. I, I, I know him and I asked him and he said yes. So I was absolutely delighted that he could do that. And he plays it absolutely wonderfully well. And what happened was is that the uh, when I first started uh, thinking about the how I would treat the album as a whole, I was thinking, well, maybe I could really go down the soloist route. And I was thinking about all these amazing musicians that I might work with. But then it sort of became apparent as I started digging into the arrangements that that wasn't the way that this was going to go. But I think that Gaudite worked so well having a solo that it just, it, it survived because it had to and also because he's so wonderful and his musicianship and the way that he plays it's so exuberant and it's just very very happy way to win the album carols without words a new recording from john metcalf Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Mocker. 